Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tyson Crowley. We're at Crowley Wines. It's November 26, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tyson. We appreciate this. Uh, First question, most important question, why wine? Why wine? Well, I think uh, a lot of people would probably say that wine found them. I definitely would. Um, I was working while I was in in college uh, studying operations management, so I was I was um, inclined toward a, a production, a manufacturing um, setting. Um, I'm not sure why. I think I have like a little engineering kind of bent. And so I was really attra- attracted to um, manufacturing. Mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, upstate New York. My grandfather had a dairy business called Crowley uh, Foods. And um, so I was kind of around that all the time. And I think I just was geared toward manufacturing of some sort. Mm-hmm. Along the way, I didn't know what I would actually, how that I would apply that. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing various field trips in college to uh, manufacturing settings. Mm-hmm. And then um, I liked the idea, like the concept of efficiency and, and, and how things work. And so, and kind of the, the nuts and bolts of, mm-hmm. of manufacturing was cool to me. Uh, so as a setting, I was just naturally inclined that way. And then I went and visited upstate New York wine region and um, I, was, I was just, just, it was the lightning bolt. And I was like, this is it, I like this. And it had to do with the sensory aspect of being in a winery, kind of like everybody. You go into a winery and you're, you're immediately Taken by the smells and the you know the, the sights and having you know no background in wine at all, it was really uh, about that. It was it was a um, it was just being in the kind of the right place, right time, and and I was still pretty young. I was nineteen, so I wasn't I wasn't able to like get right to it. But I, I and I was in operations management, so I wasn't really studying wine per se at all. And so I moved to the to Seattle and um, upon graduation and kind of held on to that idea that I, I might try wine. And so it was starting to percolate a little bit. And then um, I went into uh, project management first. I thought I might work for the Port of Seattle and um, ended up pursuing that. It, it kind of dead-ended a little bit. And from there, I just set my sights on wine and I started um, visiting the wineries around Seattle, Saint Michel, mm-hmm. Columbia, mm-hmm. Uh, Bay Ridge Island Winery. Mm-hmm. And I started bringing wine home to drink. So I was getting myself you know, inclined toward wine as a as a culture, really. You know how people bring it home, cook. So this kind of like culture of wine was like for me uh, a brand new thing because I wouldn't I wasn't brought up in that. You know, I wasn't brought up in the cook with wine and eat and food. And 
Um, so I was really discovering this all by myself and, you know, having friends involved and, and then getting kind of caught up in the romance, I think, of, of just like wine, mm -hmm. bring it home. You kind of sense the excitement. It wasn't great wine at the time, but uh, it, it didn't matter. It was like the ritual shop, bring wine home. And I started to kind of just soak in and I just started to enjoy it. I enjoyed the food part too. And so I was kind of um, building my own enculturation, I guess, um, from scratch. Mm -hmm. And combined with that, I had this this sort of vague idea that I would pursue wine as a as a career. Mm -hmm. So I uh, kind of locked in on that concept. And then um, once I decided I wasn't going to work for the Port of Seattle, I um, started calling wineries in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And uh, at that time, it was 1994, and there were only a hundred, probably a hundred. In total, mm -hmm. well, maybe 120. But I just started at the top of the list and started calling down through the. It was the back page of the Oregon Wine Press. Mm -hmm. All the wineries were there. All the phone numbers were there, and it was old school. I just picked up the phone and and uh, a few people called me back. I remember uh, distinctly Cameron called me back, which was great because I worked for Cameron eventually, and he didn't call anybody back. <laughs> So the messages would pile up, and I knew he didn't call many people back, so I, you know, he's just busy. But uh, I remember distinctly him calling me back, leaving me a message, and it was just, it was just funny. But uh, years later, I ended up working for him. But eventually, I got a lead to work for Erath, mm -hmm. and uh, I was um, told that it would be a, a hospitality job first and um, with potential to work in production so I came down I interviewed and 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 it just so happened Rob Stewart I don't know if you've interviewed him yet he's amazing and we became kind of just sort of buds and and uh, it was kind of meant to be he was new there I was ready to roll and get get into this wine thing and he said sure and uh he's from upstate new york too so we kind of had a little connection and, um, anyway i hit my you know i ended up there and uh worked seven vintages there and, and uh, my first two weeks were a little like oh my god what did i do because i'd moved from seattle down to rural you know, I'd lived in Portland, but I was driving out to Dundee mm -hmm, every day. Mm -hmm. So my life was totally different, but, uh, and at first was, it was a little nerve wracking, but then as I got into the work and I got into the, to the, you know, the con you know, the contact with the wine, um, and it was just kind of magical, you know, it was probably two weeks and I was, I was, I was hooked. hooked. And uh, I liked the physicality, I liked the atmosphere, especially at uh, Erath at the time, the setting was just, was just really neat. So, um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty fortunate really. I think, you know, I mean, I made the steps and I took the steps, but um, 
you know, I felt like I landed in a good situation, and and so once I kind of got used to it, um, I was I was really happy, and and I, I could sense the Oregon wine industry was 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 you know something cool to be a part of, mm-hmm. and I was lucky to work with a, a pioneer. You know, I ended up. Not, I didn't realize it all at the time, but after the fact, I was I was really fortunate to end up with um, in that situation at Erath. He was old school. The winery ran like a small winery, but it was big, so it was very hands-on, very um, hard, very hard work. But I think um, the wine industry kind of sorts people out by by that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, I've seen. A lot of people try it, a lot of people get in and then get out, and that's the kind of place that really tests you, and and, um, if you can uh, get through, you know, a harvest or two um, and keep trucking, chances are the wine thing is for you, because (laughs) that was, that was kind of hard yards <laughs> so but it was fun and, and we had a good community there uh, we had great people uh, it was really fun to run the cellar we also had a lot of great fruit so I think for me it was a great place to get to learn about terroir and you know as you look back you're you know you're thinking what what are the great terroirs in Oregon and you know Dundee is definitely definitely up there if not the uh, best terroir. I mean, it's a matter of opinion, but we worked with every great vineyard in that mm-hmm. off off Warden Hill Road. We had every vineyard in that building, and so it was a great place to get in touch with the nuances of of place and the way the wines were made. Each of the vineyards had a had its own expression, mm-hmm. and and so that's how I came to know. That's how I came to the kind of how I make wine now is, you know, terroir and this this um, commitment to a place having a, a voice in the wines, and that was all really just through you know through working there, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'd sort of always gravitated toward that and after the fact, but I was really appreciative of of my time there. There was so much I learned. Even though I gotta be honest, I didn't know I was learning all of it at the time. It was just, you know, getting through it and working hard. And but I was getting an education too. So yeah, yeah, and I just ended up being happy with with the lifestyle. Um, I met a lot of great people, still great friends that I have today. All came through Erath. So it's a great place to land, and, and I felt, you know, feel lucky to to have done that. But I mean, I started drinking wine too. You know, I started sort of soaking in the actual wine itself in a way that I never had before. And so I think in training for making wine, you know, especially in a, in a given terroir, you have to absorb what's going on through the, through the glass. You know, the, the experience of um, learning what's, what's going on in a place and sure. so I was really doing that too, sure. and uh, and and I felt I really felt hard for for Pinot Noir, um, and I felt lucky to be in in Oregon, you know, because Pinot Noir is a, such a noble uh, bridal and 
so expressive and it really resonates for me. Mm-hmm. So there was um, a strong connection to that building too. So I was learning the trade, but I was also developing a really strong connection to the wine mm-hmm. and understanding uh, the the magic behind wine and yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was it was it was a great great place to start out. Sure. Seven vintages was a was a good run too. So. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah. So when you decided when you're in Seattle and you decided the wine was what you wanted to do, why Oregon? Why were you looking at the Oregon wine press specifically and, and planning to move down here rather than staying in Washington? Um, I had a good friend living in Portland, and uh, you know she she was an important person to me. So I I ended up you know visiting her a lot and um, we were good friends and so I I was spending time here anyway I kind of didn't I didn't realize East I didn't feel like Eastern Washington was for me and and the growing region up around Seattle was virtually nil I mean they had a few vineyards out on the islands but mainly there was manufacturing Um, big facilities Columbia San Michelle I think there's more micro stuff happening now, but um, for me at the time, uh, I didn't have a sense for a growing region. And so once I came down to Portland and started visiting on the weekends and going to the valley and mm-hmm. visiting wineries and stuff, all of a sudden I had a sense for the for the for the actual where the growing was happening. And I think that was ultimately what kind of uh, sort of charmed me, you know, was, was the growing area. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was, yeah, it was just that. It was really just visiting and, and I, I didn't really want to live in Seattle. You know, I was kind of, kind of sort of done with that, uh, two years. And I thought Portland was pretty cool. I like provincial parts of Portland. Uh, it's not quite as grandiose, but I like the, I like kind of the, I don't know. I like Portland. Mm-hmm. It fit. Mm-hmm. So the move was good, and then the you know the wine street mm-hmm. was was you know a good fit too. And uh, yeah, mainly it was growing region though. I sure. just didn't. I didn't really even know about Walla Walla and all that. You know, I came to understand that a little bit later. So I'm curious. You had you had this sort of kind of idea about making wine from from New York, from from visiting wineries. Uh, I'm curious, when it came to actually working in a cellar, when it came to actually working in your mouth, what, what, how were your preconceptions? Was it, was making wine what you thought it was? What was different about it? What was, what what excited you about it? Um, gosh, there was, I mean, there was a lot to chew on there for, for a production, as a production. So like for a person that's into, Mm -hmm. you know, the steps it takes to get something mm-hmm. made. There was a lot going on there. Uh, and it was pretty fun for a young 20-something guy, uh, jumping in and driving forklift and running pumps and filters and bottling lines. Like, it was pretty fun, uh, pretty engaging. I think that part of it was was appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and somewhere in there was was this product, you know, and it's a very refined product. And so I really liked the idea that you were in this uh, nurturing mode of this this fine product, even though the work itself was kind of rugged and dirty. And 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was dirty and rough, rough, you know, it was tiring. Mm -hmm. And but in the middle of that was this this amazing product. And so mm -hmm. it was like you're kind of nurturing it through all these stages and you know and cleaning was a big piece of it and and I didn't really realize that but once I mean once you get going on it you're kind of like it's it's sort of not unlike you know cooking in a kitchen but it's just bigger scale and a lot of its preparation and cleaning and then execution and the better you execute the better the product and uh, I think that appealed to me, this mm -hmm. idea that you can kind of constantly improve um, process mm -hmm. and that would end up influencing the product. And, and so it hit on so many levels, you know, aesthetically, there was a lot to, you know, to, that was appealing. Mm -hmm. um, the scientific part of it, I was also picking up on able to work in the lab and starting to uh, understand these concepts, you know, the basic concepts around wine that, that are scientific and, you know, the chemistry, and that was engaging too. So I understand why people get into wine. Like a lot of people from various backgrounds get into wine because it appeals to a lot of parts, I think, of, of, of a person. Um, and I think I was just sort of realizing that along the way and um, you know it was it was appealing in so many on these various levels and and to this day I mean in a winery I like I love being around a winery so I, I it doesn't get old like I just love the the process and the product and but I'd say uh, the shocking part probably was the amount of work you know just how physical mm -hmm. and I think that was partly that environment it was big mm -hmm. and um, but also hands-on like you said super hands-on <laughs> and now I look back I go well there's easier ways to probably do all that but we didn't have the benefits of um, I think Dick because he was a pioneer he had sort of evolved to make do with with what he had mm -hmm. even as the scale was growing mm -hmm. so everything was a little undersized everything was a little old and so it made the process very deliberate and sensual and hard mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but um, as I said I think that's uh, all the people that I know they're still in the wine business that ever went through that setting at Erath like JK Carrier Jim's a great friend and and uh, we all look back finally on it it kicked our butts but and we made no money <laughs> But we were all so much better for it in, in the long run mm -hmm. as, as, as sort of wine people. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was cool. It was, you know, and, and we had a lot of interns that came there. We had a lot of Kiwis and Australians and French, and we had, we had people from all over. Um, and they loved it too. You know, they came there and they were just happy as clams to be working in that cellar. And, you know, they didn't care. So there was something kind of soulful about it, even though it was uh, it was gritty. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the long run, uh, if he can make it through that experience as a wine individual, mm -hmm. um, you're better for it. Mm -hmm. And the exposure to Dick was cool. 
um, you know, getting a sense for a pioneer's story and their their process and. There's a lot of nuances there, actually, because the wine industry during the 90s was changing a lot. Um, and Dick was, was uh, his sort of generation, the, the, the pioneers were, were dealing with these, these new sort of inputs, you know, um, warmer vintages, a lot of press, scores, you know, things that were going on that were they weren't quite like wired uh, for all that, you know. Dick Dick was a he made a lot of wine. He had to make sure he sold it, and so um, that time presented a lot of new variables to, to the pioneers. And I think they all had to sort out, okay, what are we what are we doing now? So it was interesting to see him navigate those sort of influences. Mm -hmm. I think with all the great fruit that we had in that building, um, and the prices were starting to creep up and, and stuff like that, I think there was a temptation to go more luxury. And I think Dick had to go through the soul searching of like, what are we doing? What are we about? And because um, you had the you had new influences suddenly and new brands and new kind of identities. Mm -hmm. um, it was changing, you know, the, the, the tenor of Oregon was changing and he could see him uh, kind of working his way through that. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had, you know, people around him that were influencing him and talking to him and trying to help him shape the brand and I think he, he went through his own process of what, so what are we and what, what, am, what do I still, what am, how much do I want to change, how much, you know. So it was kind of cool watching him, him navigate a changing industry and um, I understand that more now because I have a brand and you know it does change fast and things come up and movements take hold and fads happen and pricing changes and oh, you know stuff stuff's always evolving and uh, as I look back now I thought man you know Dick went through a lot of different stages because he started from pretty much day one mm -hmm. so uh, to internalize the pioneers kind of process a little bit was cool mm -hmm. um, so that was another kind of like cool like thing that I got out of that too you landed in a pretty great spot there. I think so. And I, people ask me, like, what would you recommend if I wanted to get in the industry? I say, work for a, work for a big winery. You know, just go get your butt kicked and, and figure it out. Um, I, I think there's something just great about that. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is... It shows you what's really kind of going on. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he, if you take a job here, job there, you work harvest here, small winery, you go to another small winery, maybe go Southern Hemisphere, come back, and then you're, you feel like you got it figured out. I, I kind of don't think that's true. I think hanging in one place through multiple vintages, seeing the, the, the cycle, uh, multiple times is 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 really good for a, a person. Mm -hmm. 
understanding how the wine begins, how it ends, what's going on in the middle. And then do another vintage that's maybe completely different. And, and you know, there's a lot of variables um, that go with vintages, you know. And so it's not even enough really to do one vintage somewhere, I think. You gotta maybe do like two or three or four. Mm -hmm. And then you're really starting to understand like the, the, the wine thing. Um, especially if you can get access to sales, the sales end of stuff, which you don't always get at a big place. You're kind of buffered from, from, from a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But I'd say even from the production end of it, you can learn a lot just by sticking around and going through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. So. You mentioned being, being attracted to the Oregon industry kind of from the beginning and, and also talking about all the changes it was going through. So tell me about your initial impressions of Oregon wine. What, what, did you, what, what was the industry when you got into it? What did you think of it? What, what, was, what were the changes that were, that were happening that you were, they, we, it, obviously growing, obviously more press. How was the industry responding to that and dealing with it? Um. I mean, my impressions of the wines at that time, it was the mid-90s, and the wines were incredibly delicate. We were getting rainy vintages, and the wines were light and expressive and, and fun, and the way they were made at Erath was, was, it kind of played that, mm -hmm. played into that. Mm -hmm. So I was really attracted to the product, um, kind of hands down. You know, I, I'd sort of just, I loved the wines at the time, you know, and and then, you know, these wet, coolish vintages turned into warmer vintages. We had the 94, which is pretty, kind of one of the first maybe sort of dark mm -hmm. vintages and it started to kind of get, get more press and I just remember without, I don't have all the, I don't have all the nuances of, of like, how scores and things came to be in the industry, but I remember certain, all of a sudden it felt like hype was building. You know, we had this archery summit and Juan and Ken Wright and, and a different wave of producers that all of a sudden were sort of a little more in the, um, in the spotlight, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I do think that we started getting with the warmer vintages, certain accolades were building for the for the industry, mm -hmm. and it was just all kind of happening at once. Mm -hmm. And I think the uh, the media attention was was shifting a little bit. And like I said, I don't know all the details there because I was pretty busy. But I remember it sort of working around, like kind of you could kind of feel it around the industry, the way things were changing. There was. Uh, the pioneers were kind of being, mm -hmm. kind of pushed out of the scene just a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and the new wave of producers, the Penrash, the Ken Wright, the even John Paul mm -hmm. and and the like were, and they were they were they were the rock stars of that moment, mm -hmm. and so there was that dynamic shift that was kind of going on, and I do think that there was also more emphasis on uh, quality of of the manufacturing you know there was this idea that we can take the wines to a new a new place and um, and it would take a little more investment mm -hmm. it would take 
nicer equipment, nicer buildings, nicer, you know what I mean? Like all of a sudden it was like, okay, this, this kind of groovy rustic organ thing was like kind of quaint, and, but it was like, now it's time to take, take this up a few, a few levels. And I think that was a good thing. You know, I think, um, at that time it was, it was kind of what, what was needed, you know, this, this idea that, you know, we can, we can do better. I think they all, I think we all, after the pioneers have the benefit of the, the infrastructure is already sort of there, so we can, we, we can do the refinement, whereas I don't think the, the pioneers always had that option. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they were sort of planting grapes, you know, building a winery, selling into a market that didn't know anything about organs. So they had a lot of other things on their plate. And I think uh, one of the themes was, was that, you know, the wineries were kind of scrappy and a little bit, you know, uh, you know, not everybody had a winemaker and an assistant winemaker and a seller and, you know, a seller master. It was like still the bootstrapping kind of mentality. And now all of a sudden we were getting this professional kind of like, okay, now there's a winemaker, there's an assistant winemaker, there's seller master. New barrels, good equipment, you know, things like that. Um, gravity flow wineries. Um, and then you have like Duran who's, who came on the, to the scene and brought this kind of um, mystique and validation. And, and yet they had a beautiful building. And a, so it's kind of like, I think we were, we were just sort of going into this mode of how do we make this better now? And, you know, and, and I think that was it was another kind of new expansion, a new place that Oregon was going. And with that came a good amount of press and attention and, and, and attention, you know, in a good way, you know, kind of like it was another kind of quantum leap for the, for the industry. Um, but I think that transition between the 80s and 90s and early 2000s was kind of a little, you know, a little tricky. Like I, I always heard from everybody at ERAF that the 80s were, were hard for the Oregon wine industry. You know, volumes were building, but the demand was still almost always short of that. So it was, um, it was, uh, I think, hard. And I think I wasn't there, but I, I kind of had the sense there was like a little sort of lull late 80s, early 90s of like, okay, what are we doing? Now we've figured certain things out, but now what? And then all of a sudden it like kicked in again in the late 90s, I think we had this whole new sort of identity and, and uh, in a sense of purpose that was just clear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting to be a part of that. <laughs> I can imagine. So, uh, seven vintages at Erath. Uh, tell me what happens next for, uh, for you. Where, where, did, where did you go from there? So, I went from there to. Uh, I was kind of getting a sense I might want to make wine, mm -hmm. but I was still not like quite ready. And so, I, uh, I spent 2002, I went to New Zealand, came back, and then I worked 2002 harvest for my buddy Jim. 
J.K. Carrier. Mm -hmm. um, he had he was just down the street here, mm -hmm. and uh, I was sort of in transition. I, I wasn't totally sure what my next step was as far as where I wanted to work. I ended up there in Brickhouse, in Brickhouse at the same time. So it was kind of like a little bit of a sort of a fun year to just do different stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I loved working at both places and, and the scale of both places kind of helped me get, get it, get kind of down on that level of, okay, this is what winemaking's like. This is what having a brand feels like. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of getting, getting sort of my, myself uh, oriented a little bit to that. Doug, of course, has great wines. So I was also, for the first time I was ever, I was really exposed to, to Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And the, the basic, you know, the kind of the, the magic of Chardonnay in Oregon. So that was the big, big takeaway from that experience. I, I really was, we were drinking the O1s at lunch, and I was like, wow, Oregon Shard, this is good. And his wine was really good. So that was a little bit of a aha with Shard that I hadn't had before. And so that was cool. And then uh, after that, I worked for Archery Summit. So I took a job there, worked for Anna Matzinger. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to work in vineyards and I also was, I don't know, I was kind of inclined toward um, something different than archery. It felt, uh, maybe it was being inside that, that building. I, I was like, I was kind of used to being outside a little bit. And I was kind of like, I don't want, I don't know, it just, it was cool, but uh, anyway, long story short, I got called by John Paul, and actually I got called by his assistant, uh, Kyle, and uh, he asked if I was, I'd be interested in, in taking the assistant job at Cameron. And so Archery Summit lasted six months, and I couldn't turn that one down. I had to, you know, I knew the vineyard part was part of it. You know, I knew he was an iconic producer, and I'd had some some kind of like natural sort of connection to John, and um, so I, I did that. And and again, the wines were rustic and sensual, and very Oregon. I think that was the other thing. My 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 stop over at Archery, it felt like there was there was a little bit of a. The DNA of it was a little different than what I was used to. Mm -hmm. I like really essential organ uh, feel. Mm -hmm. Like we have our own thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so once I got to John's, it was like I was kind of starting over again. Very, very much a, a unique atmosphere. He makes wine in his own way. He farms too, and so all sort of like the industry standard stuff that you, you know you you pick up at bigger places were didn't really apply. <laughs> so it was kind of like um, starting over and uh, learning learning this other thing. And it was very European too. Like his his whole sensibility was a little more old world. And that was the underground portion 
of of my sort of training that I hadn't hadn't experienced yet, and uh, being around wine that was in barrel under you know in a space that was damp and cool and and just there were so many little nuances to that 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 I hadn't understood yet, and I realized like winemaking is so. Um, some ways, some kind of there's some generic aspects to it that get kind of like passed along to mm -hmm. place to place to place, and and I realized like really really interesting and cool wine is 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 uh, is more you know it's more of a sensual process. You kind of ask why you don't just do it. You go, why do I top every week? I don't know, you know, and truth is. You don't really have to, but if if you're in the if if you're in an above ground facility and your uh, barrel your wine's shrinking because your atmosphere is dry, then topping every week is what you do need to do. So there was like all these little things that were emerging that I was like, wine is uh, there's so many different ways to get get there. Um, and industry protocol is some, you know, something you should question. Um, and uh, in your training, you get point, you know, things. A lot of places kind of do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Cameron was a great place for me to realize that, you know, a you don't have to, and and in some ways you shouldn't. You know, you should ask. Every, every little detail of the wine should be a question of why am I doing this and, and, and so um, yeah it was neat and I think that, that, that old world sensibility kind of sank into and uh, realizing that Oregon's so new really and if, if all we do is focus on our own stuff here, we're, we're, we're kind of missing some things. You know, I think our evolution as a region can be benefited by uh, a little more exposure and a little more understanding of how the old world has been mm -hmm. operating. Mm -hmm. And so he brought that into mind too. Um, I think, you know, we all get a little bit carried away with our own scene. And I think as a as a community, we de develop sort of cellar palette mm -hmm. for for Oregon. Mm -hmm. And I think we sometimes feel like we're making these strides, but it it sometimes feel like it's in a vacuum too. So he was good about kind of like breaking me out of this mode of it's all about Oregon, mm -hmm. like sunrises and sets on Oregon, and uh, wine being such an old thing you know we're we're in a continuum you know we're we're not really you know coming out of nowhere we're lucky that we found Oregon mm -hmm. and Oregon's been discovered and, mm -hmm. but there's it's such a long the history of the of wine is so long that um, we have to keep looking at what's come before us and, and um, not get too caught up in what you know what we're doing is the end all be all. So John was great for that. Um, 
so there was a lot of a lot of takeaway there and I did six vintages there mm -hmm. three four five six seven part of eight mm -hmm. so yeah it was cool and it was cool because I got to learn how to run a small business you know and I think uh, as I said before in a bigger winery you get kind of buffered from from market what works what doesn't um, and so as training goes for for having a winery it was it was ideal um, many many small wineries uh, and and many of my peers look look at John's model as being pretty tip-top in terms of you know having great quality interesting wines unique wines uh, and a neat business that, that's always relevant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I think that was uh, a, another sort of take-home mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of lot of training going on there mm -hmm. and, uh, and the cool part is he never said like hey you know pay attention to this I'm gonna drop some <laughs> knowledge he never did that it was just like kind of just being around him mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. seeing how he did his thing and, mm -hmm. so. so at what point did you decide that you were ready and wanted to start your own thing uh, that was 05 mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to get a brand started you know it would be small but he had done little 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 thing for Jay Summers and he said okay um, there's Jay's old footprint he had like taped it you know it's for the palate <laughs> his palate of wine or two palettes I think he says you can have that space right there and uh, that's all so he said you know go for it and it was generous in retrospect because I think what Jay did was he turned that little palette sized footprint into um, you know his his winery and so I did the same thing I made four barrels um, I had come to how I wanted to make wine uh, at least I knew where I was gonna start and then um, I was able to do it there and then the following year I made six barrels there two Chardonnays I think and then after that, he, he's, he's kind of like, he was very wise in that regard. He said, if you're, if you're, if you're really going to have a brand, you got to focus on it. Mm -hmm. And he knew also as an assistant that if I had a brand, I'd start to be thinking more about my stuff. And he, he, he knew because he had started a brand. So he knew like it takes everything, even if it's not really that big. Sure. So, um, so in 07, I took the space here and started kind of ramping up. But uh, I felt ready and I felt like I knew what I wanted. I had connections in the industry and so. You mentioned when you started that you had an idea what you wanted to make or wh where you wanted to go, how you wanted to make it. Mm -hmm. Tell me what your kind of initial sort of winemaking philosophy was at that point and, and maybe how it's, how it's changed today, if at all. Well, I think for me, the first thing was just purity. I was really, I really loved all the wines that I'd been around that felt earthy and pure and, and uh, transparent and expressive and 
I liked Unique too. I liked a little signature, a brand signature. So Doug had that, John had that, Erat had that at the time. Um, when he drank the wine, he went, yeah, that, this is a Cameron, this is a Brickhouse, this is a Erat. I love that. And I think the, the, so if you trace back to what that is, it was these wines were made so simply. They weren't over extracted. They were just delicate and, and pure. And so that was like the first thing. That was my biggest priority was to make wines that felt like that. You know, it was the taste of it. It was the smell of it, but it was the feel of it. It was real. So I went into to it with that goal in mind. I didn't add any, um, you know, I wasn't a yeast guy or an acid guy or a, you know, filter guy. I was just nothing. I really took took a lot of pride in that. Um, and that's where the wines ended up, which was cool. And I did the long aging. You know, I, I, I really appreciated the overwintering. Uh, so 16 to 20 months. I like the natural refinement of that. I like the beauty of the wines, the natural clarity, the, the balance from, from that. Like you can't simulate time, you know, you can't just filter it and call it, you know, it's different. You gotta wait. And so I was into that. I wanted to make that wine that I really loved right out of the gate. I wasn't thinking about, okay, I'll get to that wine. You know, I was like, I want to make that wine. I'm not going to do four or five years of um, turning the wine over quickly just to get the, you know, the return and stuff. Um, so I had this longer program mindset and I thought that was the best way to get to the wines that I wanted to make. And so I was committed to that. Two vintages in the cellar um, at one time. Mm -hmm. Right now it's 19 and 18, but um, that was how I set it up. So we didn't bottle our first wine until 2007. And I wanted the wines to feel that integrity and I wasn't gonna compromise on that. Um, and that's sort of what happened. I mean, I think the wines came off sort of mature and they didn't feel, I mean, I feel like I had enough training and enough behind me that I think uh, I wasn't kind of like fishing around, you know, for what, what I wanted the wines to feel like. And um, I think that was a good thing. I think that was the a great thing about having experience. And, um, so I felt like the wines were where I wanted them in terms of purity and I was working with Dundee Hills Fruit, which I liked. I like, you know, I still kind of have that in my, in my uh, system, you know. And so I was happy with where the wines were and stuff and I thought the brand had an identity too, which, which is cool right out of the gate. Um, but I was careful with that. You know, I wanted to feel rustic. I did. I, I, I knew the, the aesthetic I was trying to project. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted them to feel related to uh, this Ilka producer I, I admired. And that was the, the Camerons and the Brickhouses and the Iris and the Evesham Wood. Like, I, I wanted to belong in that camp, you know. Mm -hmm. 
So I was pretty deliberate about that, and um, and yeah, just you know, I always think about. I remember seeing a picture of David Lett, and it was a cool picture because he was in the cellar and he's in his like cellar gear and he's standing over a barrel and he was so like thought you could tell he was so thoughtful <laughs> and so like into it and I think you know his legacy probably by then was totally set and yet there he was still in his barrels and thinking and you know I think he was always trying to improve his thing but I always feel like he was it was a quest that was really personal and it was like he was he was engaged in a way that was um, very personal too and trying to hit a new spot but keep his core like integrity and intact and I think that's the thing is you're you know every year you're trying to make progress and and yet you want to retain a sense of your what you think is valuable and um, and what you're tr you're trying to be true to Pinot Noir you know and Chardonnay but you're trying to be true to that in, t in terms of um, uh, you want to honor it and with the the goal in mind of improving it, um, you want to, you know, honor the, the 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 nature piece and make sure it's it's all happening in a way that feels holistically good, you know. And I think, uh, I, and that's a very very like neat part of, of making wine and and uh, and I think there's mystique around Pinot there's mystique around this region that grows it there's a mystique I think and and uh, I I, I kind of try and tap into that too as I'm going through this and listen and so back to the the wines and it, so like from there I was I think feeling pretty good about the identity of the of the wines and then of course as you go along you it's interesting you're you, you know those early days are so awesome because you have all your scruples you know you have like you're like you're not gonna bend for anything <laughs> and then naturally I think you, you start to take in like what's going on out there you know you, you know um, so I think the life cycle and I'd probably think if I talked to a lot of my peers they would agree that two or three years in you start wondering am I doing this right am I getting this right am I you know what I mean and and you're looking around at your you know the industry as a whole and you're wondering how do I fit in and am I fitting in and so there's like these little questions that come up I think you get you get a grace period in the beginning where you just don't give a rip and then all of a sudden you're you're conscious of your like your thing and your place 
And I think also as your volumes build, you start, you start, you have to make sure you're relevant. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that, that sort of thing that happens too is, okay, now I'm building a business and now it has to be relevant. And so what's relevant and what makes up relevant? And I think um, somewhere in there, you gotta like protect the wines and protect them from all that. But as a winemaker, you're going through these stages of, um, how, you know, how am I doing? Existentialism here. Yeah. Where do I fit in that? Yeah, how, how am I doing? And what's, what's, you know, and the wines are always a, a little bit of the, the, the wines are always in the middle of that somehow, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so, you know, you might spend a little more time dissecting the wines as you go along. And um, some of it's quality control, some of it's, uh, you, you know, your, your market trends and stuff. And then some of it's just, you're changing and you're learning about wine too, as you go. You know, you get one year to do this. Between then and the next vintage, you probably drink a lot of wine and you probably soak in a lot of input. As a, as a winemaker and a brand owner, you're, you're taking in a lot of input. And so the next year you might have a whole nother kind of like baseline. Mm -hmm. But you have to be careful not to like reinvent the wheel. And so you're always kind of evaluating what's, what's my true north and what's, what's working for me and what do I feel like tweaking. Mm -hmm. And so my purity, my commitment to purity and is still at the, at the center of it. Mm -hmm. Terroir is really important to me now. I think having visited Burgundy, I'm like, wow, terroir is so important. And we get caught up in the wine and winemaking and where the wine lives. And, but this commitment to terroir is, it felt like I didn't quite understand even myself what I, what I meant or thought about terroir. Mm -hmm. And so now I feel like the wines have to drive even more toward that goal of terroir than, I, than, than in the beginning. Uh, and I think the method for doing that uh, has changed for me. You know, I see ways that I can put a finer point on terroir in the process. And so um, I think just throwing the grapes in the fermenter and letting it rip, putting it in barrel, waiting and then bottling. It was a great starting point. And I look back on all the wines they made just that way. And I love them. And then some of them I look at and I think, okay, I'll keep that, that, and that, but I, I want more of something else. And, <laughs> and so I think every, It's neat, you know, the winemaking, like having a brand and stuff is really cool because I do think you, you go through the natural, like the confidence that comes with being new. Like where you're just like, don't give a rip about anything. And then all of a sudden you care about everything. And then you get to actually a place where you're, you're a little like 
back to the. This is this is. Uh, I feel really confident now in what the vision is, and, and I think that's that's a neat evolution. And so the wines to me now, even though they're still. They still resonate as really pure, and um, the feel of them is still great. I like the the transparency, and mm -hmm. I think they're actually more refined in terms of the the delivery of, of that. You know, I think that um, as I said, a finer you know a finer point, and I think that's just. Um, Going through some stages where I, I maybe played around with something like I did a lot of stem for a minute, and then I, and I felt like okay, I felt like I'm drifting from where I wanted to be, and then at the same time I was tasting a lot of old world wine. I'm like, there's there's no compromise in terms of terroir and old world wines. Rarely do you taste one that feels manufactured, mm -hmm. and yet some of these are big scale. Uh, wines and they're not always expensive either um, and you're like this is their their experience paying off mm -hmm. they're like okay terroir is still the 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 thing but we're gonna refine you know we're gonna make sure that we're the wines are getting more precise and more polished and more you know, just like the drinking experience is always improving. And so I think that's kind of what I'm, I think that's my job, is to kind of create this balance and, the, and make sure that when you're drinking the, the wine, you're like, God, this is just, man, it's good. Like it's well made and it feels good. Mm -hmm. And that's, that doesn't mean to, to, to really trump the, the terroir and the sense of place and the vintage. Mm -hmm. It's just a better, you know, a better wine overall. And uh, I think that's where the old world, uh, you know, I'm in a tasting group and we just, it's not super rigorous, but we, we drink a lot of older, old world wine and um, you try and de decode that somewhat, deconstruct it and then apply it to your own setting. Mm -hmm. and I think that's where we are in Oregon. We're, we're so young. Mm -hmm that we're actually having to do that. We're actually having to come up with ideas and apply them and then see how it works out. Um, and where we get that information is, some of it's internal, some of it's other wineries, other winemakers, but you know, a, referencing the old world is, is a great thing too, just because of their experience. And I think they've been through these steps. I think one of the cool things about Oregon is it's young in the big scheme. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a 40-year-old, 50-year-old industry and well, it's really nothing. So um, we take these, uh, you know, we get into these sort of moments where we think, okay, we've arrived at this spot, um, whether it be on the winemaking side or the viticulture. And we'd love it to be the end of the line and we've found the answer and it's, you know, we're done. But the truth is, is, is that hasn't, that, that never happens. You know, these are just the way, the, the sort of the, the benchmarks and the, mm -hmm. 
these are the things that move the industry forward, but it's never, it's never done. Right. And it's kind of cool to think like 200 years or 300 years from now, like what Oregon would be like, you know? And yeah, I'm sad actually, I won't be there, but <laughs> I'm just like, this is so cool, you know, to be a part of this and see something come out of nowhere. And, and yet it's so young and, um, you know, and so I think too, uh, what am I in now, vintage 12 or something of Crowley and, and I think about what do I want to achieve as a brand to contribute, which I never thought of in the beginning, you know, I was like just trying to get the brand running and you know, and, and everybody's got that sort of thing. But now I think a little bit like, okay, what, what does the industry need, you know, to, how does, how can my brand leave them, leave a sort of a, an impression in terms of progress for Oregon? Um, so I'm thinking along those lines a little bit too, like, what would make Oregon feel a little bit more like, I, I always think about Burgundy, but like, like what's, what, what is, what do we need to be doing to kind of get ourselves there? Because I think Oregon's special like that, and it will be. I think Oregon has a, a really great future, and I think, you know, we're a little bit of a harder one to put our finger on, you know, and I think, some of the but that's the kind of the beauty of it it's not easy you know and and i think it's not easy for consumers it's not easy for the players in the market it's not easy for the winemakers and but i think that's the cool part is i think there's some there's density density to this and um so to think of Oregon being in, in the distant future, uh, another Burgundy is kind of neat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I think we have to, but I think it's all baby steps. I, you know, there's never gonna be like the one big uh, quantum leap. And, uh, and that's cool too. You know, I think uh, just, um, we all have to kind of be process oriented even in, in, within our own brand. You know, we have to be process oriented. There isn't one thing that's gonna make your brand um, done, <laughs> you know? And there isn't one thing that's gonna make Oregon done. You know, it's just, it's just a lot of little steps and all very conscious and, um, and that's neat because we're building something and, and I think it's, uh, it's cool. Everybody, you know, talks about the community being close here. And I think that's, that's why. Because I think at its core, people here, we know we're all part of this little, this story, you know. And I think everybody's trying to do it right, too. You know, that's the cool part. So I think that there are many, like, 
shortcuts. I don't, I don't see mm -hmm. a lot of shortcuts happening out there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's really cool. So you mentioned the, you mentioned kind of the, the life cycle of the winemaker of the, the confidence and then the kind of ab abject fear and then confidence again. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious in, in, in your, in your experience, was there a moment for you or a vintage for you when you felt like I, I got this, like I'm, I'm, I am doing the right thing. I am a part of this community. I, I, I have a future. Uh, I think man it's really recent to be totally honest you know I think it's like 17 you know <laughs> um, like I said the first few I was just sort of like I was you know I think until I hit 11 I was I was pretty sure like it was all just going just great mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, you know and I think then you hit some adversity you get a big vintage I grew a lot at that point I was kind of in this aggressive like we're going to I always wanted to be 3,000 cases you know which is where we are now that was John's number and and uh, that was all I was thinking about was like I just wanted to be as you know that size that you know it's kind of a magic excuse me magic size um, but I got kind of caught I jumped a little too quickly in 11 and then it was like the perfect storm and and those wines were not well received so I kind of took a I took a um, it was kind of humbling just in general because I'd grown quickly the vintage wasn't selling well I had I you know 2013 was 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 uh, was tricky so I think and I think the industry in general kind of dealt was dealt a little blow there you know there was like all of a sudden we were in this like pricing was changing the the vintages weren't as well received and I think that was across the board um, and then I think success felt like it was a little bit at a premium, you know, and all of a sudden, like, we're all kind of crawling out of our own hole. And for the newer brands, you know, like us and some other my peers, I think we hadn't been through that yet mm -hmm. so it was mm -hmm. you know it was like all of a sudden now we're having to kind of scramble and and uh what it felt like came easy was not so easy and so um and then i think in general the industry was dealing with a, just a little bit of a lull and um pricing was shifting a lot of stuff was shifting and like i said i think success felt like it was harder to grasp you know and um and then this question's set in. You're kind of going, okay, well, what are they doing that I'm not doing? And how do you get that score? And how do you, you know? And so it, a little bit of the calculation starts to happen. And I think that was the, um, I mean, just being totally honest, I think, <laughs> you know, I, I got caught up in, in a little bit of that, even though people probably didn't even know I was caught up in it. I was caught up in it. And I was questioning a lot of stuff. So I, I, you know, just being totally transparent, you know, I was, I was in here gripping. I was, you know, I was thinking a lot about where does, where do I fit in? Mm -hmm. um, 
do I have respect for my peers? You know, like there was like stuff that was creeping in that, that I was sort of, I didn't really like, I didn't feel any of that until, you know, sort of a, a little phase there. And it was, you know, it's 14, 15, 16, somewhere. 14, 15, 16, and, and I, you know, I didn't lose my way really with the wines, but I was really definitely trying different stuff. I think I was maybe reworking my, my I, I, you know, I'd say maybe the winemaking window a little bit of a, not the shards, but I think the Pinots went into a more of exploratory. <laughs> I was kind of borrowing from people in terms of what I thought was going on out there. And I think that I, I, I was intrigued on one level. I also wondered if that was the next thing that I should do. You know, so I, I got into that mode of, well, maybe this is the ticket. And so I started doing some of that in my own wines. STEM was the big one, mm -hmm. just to be specific. And, um, And I think I told myself that I was like advancing the, the wines and advancing, I was advancing. But in fact, it was really just, it was kind of a little bit of just a, a, a detour, you know, and I was just kind of in a, I was just in a mode where I was trying to figure it out. And, and then it wasn't really until 17 and I finally got the 16 vintage behind me and I started really sensing while we were finalizing the 16s and putting them in the bottle and stuff. Kind of realized I didn't really like the wine. Like I didn't want to drink them. You know, and, and I thought that's, yeah, this isn't, this isn't really me. <laughs> and so I started thinking more about, okay, um, I started doing more retrospective tastings of our wines, some of the verticals. So I've been tasting older stuff. And then I could see where it like moves into this phase. And then I'm like, eh, I like those older wines, even though they were less, I'd say less uh, drawn up. You know, there was not a blueprint really. So I kind of had a reset and uh, got back to kind of what I thought was my 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 aim and that was that was um what kind of came really to me in 17 even as the wines were being made i was like i think i'm i'm feeling this this approach and i was done with stem and i think just everything started to make more sense to you know Mm -hmm. to me and and yet I, I felt like I was also a little more mature in the approach and so I'd sort of learned stuff too and and it kind of coalesced around this 17 vintage and 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 all of a sudden I was just really stoked and, and more like I think uh, purposeful I guess mm -hmm. and um, and so it was cool it's like the layering of, of stuff, even, even, even like the detour <laughs> and sweating certain things. And that was all part of it. And I think that's, uh, 
probably not a really unique story, but I think, you know, having been through it myself, I understand like, you know, you go through stages and as, as a craftsperson, you know, I always think of like album, like bands and stuff, and like they go through these like little stages. And like, <laughs> that was exactly what I was just thinking as you were describing that. You're like, you know, the synthetic, you know, the synth synthetic age of the 80s and, you know, and uh, I think it took a lot of bands probably in a little bit of... 17, you went back to your guitar, is what you're saying. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> went, went uh, analog, you know, and... Uh, no, it's, so it's, you know, it's my mini journey, but I think, uh, you know, most winemakers probably stand in the room and think the same stuff. You know, how do I fit in? Am I fitting in? Am I making wines that are true to me? And, um, you know, how do I sustain that and, and, and also improve, you know, and be open to change and you know what I mean? So I think, um, I always feel like though, even with all those little sort of nuances, I, I feel like I've always had like kind of a little bit of a, a bedrock thing um, and identity in the wines and that's important. Mm -hmm. All the brands that I respect and admire no matter what they do and whatever sort of path they take, if they have some true like brand identity, mm -hmm. I think that's that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. um, the worst thing is to 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 be seeking so much that your brand isn't really a brand. You know, I think um, that's that's really important. Like I think I understand like phases and stuff, but I think. You can tell when a when a a wine or a brand is is you know jumping around too much. Mm -hmm. So I feel like even with all the the, the, the chaos, I've I've kind of had a little bit of a a thread that's been been consistent. So that's cool. So what are you looking for? You talked about the importance of terroir to you, not, but you don't have your own vineyard. So tell me what you're looking for in vineyard sites and then how you're looking to, ex to express that in your wines. What are, you, what are you seeking in fruit? I've been through, so I've done some, uh, I mean, I think Dundee resonated with me for the, for the, I mean, you can't deny when you train somewhere and that's all you know that you kind of fall for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I sort of did. I fell for the Dundee Hills. Um, it wasn't hard. I mean, I, I loved it. I, I drank a lot of that. And I drank... And I loved it. And so I think I soaked in that kind of wine, that red fruit, um, the warm spice aspect that, you know, that, that goes on there, the little bit of maple, the... I find really intriguing. I like the build of the wines. I like the color of the wines. And so Dundee worked for me. Um, I never felt like Dundee wines would ever feel like overblown mm -hmm. and, and dark. So I, I, and I really like that. I like that they're, they're ultimately pretty and the red fruit is 
you know, strawberry, bright cherry. Um, it would never run to that brooding side. I guess I'm more attracted to, to feminine Pinot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think some of the sedimentary soils drive a little too dark for me. And so, and I had worked with some, some sedimentary uh, soil fruit and, and sure enough, it's, it's always denser and darker and a little, a little There was one vineyard I worked with actually, it was, it was a cool little vineyard over on Calkins Lane and that was an exception, that was a older vineyard, own rooted old vine mm -hmm. and it had a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, but by and large when I drink sedimentary soil wine I feel like it's just a little too dark mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. So I like the lighter red end of the spectrum. Um, So three of the vineyards we have are Dundee. Um, and then the, the fourth vineyard, the Four Winds vineyard, is also basalt, so it's volcanic. But it's rockier, so it's, it's leaner. And it, so it even, it even drives more light than Dundee, which I like. So it's, it's fruit that can't be turned into a big chunky wine. It just can't. And so I like that. I like that kind of um, expression. And, and that's come to me in the last few years too, because I, I just, you know, last year I experimented with some fruit from Ribbon Ridge and um, it is dense, it's dark, dark. And I'm like, I just don't relate to this. I want to see through it. And I want it to feel airy. I like, I like airy Pinot, airy expressive Pinot, you know. Um, some, some, you know, that's, that's a personal thing and people have different takes on what they want in their Pinot. Mm -hmm. I want it to feel airy and, and available. I want, to, I want to taste the finer points and not have structure in the way and dark fruit. And, like I want to taste sort of the finer points. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like for me that that's where the volcanic soils sort of thrive. Mm -hmm. So, and, and you, you gave us a, a tour before the interview started of, of the facility here. Tell me about how you found this space and, and sort of what appeals to you about working here at August Cellars. Um, I mean, I was convinced when I left Cameron that I wanted to go underground. Like that was just not negotiable. Um, which left me with very few options, as it turns out, you know, in terms of what I, I mean, I was only making half of this row worth of wine, you know. So it was, yeah, I didn't need a whole building to myself, but I was, I, so I was kind of, I knew I'd probably be in a shared space, which, which I was fine with. And then, um, but I did want to be underground, and I just kind of heard about this place, and, um, I heard it was a beautiful facility and it was new-ish at the time and they were still, you know, building out their, their tenants and stuff and so I came and I just asked Tom if, if they had space and um, they did, they had a little bit of space so I, I, 
that was just really to me the the main objective was to to no matter what my scale uh, that I would be able to put the wines in an environment that was beneficial to the aging I wanted to do and um, and like I said before, I wanted to make the wines I wanted to make. I didn't want to wait to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't interested in being in an above ground, um, you know, warehouse in Portland or, you know, I just, we got asked to do that a lot because a lot of wineries were combining mm -hmm. efforts at that time. And we got asked numerous times if we would want to join in and, and get into a place in Portland or, other places out in the valley, you know, um, this sort of the cooperative thing was 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 happening, and we were all younger producers uh, getting rolling. So it was it was a win-win if you could do that. But a lot of those places didn't have the underground aspect, and that was really the big thing for me was was the wine and where it's at, um, having been been at Cameron for all those years I just I wasn't willing to bend on that and that's why I'm still here because I've never wanted to move out of here move the wine somewhere else above ground just to have an address to ourselves and you know there's trade-offs there obviously and it's stuff I have to think about all the time is you know not having your own winery there's some limitations, mm -hmm. and, you know, and we've had to adjust to that. But for me, it's it's still really so much just about the wine, and um, you know, we brand build in different ways. Everybody, everybody brand builds in different ways. Some people sell their 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 address. Some people sell the you know. The fact that nobody can find you, so <laughs> I feel like we're playing that card a little bit. <laughs> Where the hell do they make that one? No, it's true though. Uh, you know, you kind of work with what you got, but um, it's also been good because brand building is so delicate that to not be encumbered with all the, uh, you know, all the what comes with building a winery, and you know, it's it's. You know, it's different than it was in the 60s, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, um, uh, so it's allowed some flexibility there too, you know, just in terms of the, you know, the practical end of having a business you gotta prioritize. And, um, um, and we're close to Portland. We do a lot of marketing in Portland. So the warehouse is here. Some logistics stuff really works out great, mm -hmm. um, but again, back to the really just the wine and 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 feeling so strongly about, um, you know, I think our wines tend to over deliver, and you know, and I know why. I know why. I think I know why, but um, and that's important to me. You know, I'm not gonna like give up on on, on that. I want them to. Feel like they're they're great value, but um, you know I think this is important to that, and so I think you know I do, and and so. Mm -hmm.
and no, that was that was really awesome. Yeah, and I would say it's probably not unique at all. That, that but it's not, um, not everybody's willing to share it though. Which so we appreciate you sharing it because not everybody is willing to talk about that kind of stuff. So we appreciate that. Yeah, I mean the wine industry. You know, I think there's there's uh, it's something we got to be careful with too because it's a tough business. It's a tough business, and and I think. Um, Developing your longevity or your formula for longevity is, is you know, you're not going to get that right away. You're not going to understand, like, what is your formula for long-term relevance and, and, and not having burnout. And, you know, I think there's, it's a competitive industry, so I think um, you have to find ways to, to manage manage all that and 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 but I think it's natural to get into spots where you're 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 stressing and 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 over maybe overworking it or you know what I mean mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so and it's something I talk about with with fellow winemakers too is you know just just you know you want to be careful not to have this this burnout thing and because it's all encompassing this work. You know, you've got you've got hospitality, you've got production, you know, you're all you're all trying to make a fine wine and make your mark with this. But we all know that marketing is a isn't always about just this. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of demands that you can that get placed on, on you and you can place them on yourself and and uh, it's yeah it's just part of the navigation of of, of, of the whole thing um, if it were just about the wine I think a lot of there'd be everybody'd be more, a little more relaxed <laughs> yeah but it isn't just about that so we you know it's it's up to everybody to figure out their 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 path and then to to come up with something sustainable yeah. See? So you, you talked a lot when we started about or about the changes you were seeing kind of as you came into the industry and sort of the, the shifting industry. So tell me, as you look back now, 20 some years into being a part of the Oregon wine industry, what are the biggest changes you've seen, obviously, in addition to just pure size of the industry now, what are the biggest changes to Oregon wine that you've seen? What is different about Oregon wine now than when you started? The product? The product side, in any any way you want to take it. Yeah, I mean, I think the cool thing is I consider myself and my peer group to be like the third, the third wave, if you want to call it that. And I think we have a strong regard for the pioneers, uh, you know. And and that's not just sort of anecdotal. Um, uh, you know, I talk to my peer group and. And I think um, there's a healthy regard for what they went through, how they made the wines. And yet the second wave too was super relevant in terms of advancing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, in general quality, I would say, and, and coming up with new ways to go about this that are also very relevant. And so we, we I think, tried to kind of like bring those two pieces together. Um, 
and I, I feel like that's happening. Like I think the wines still feel sensual, but they're also well made. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I don't think there was, I don't think they're exclusive um, concepts. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the pioneers, I mentioned David Ladd earlier, but I think all of them were, were really passionate about terroir. Um, and I think that's something that you have to, we just kind of have to keep, you know, bringing with us while the advancements are made in, in, in process and quality. And so I think um, what I'm seeing now are lots of refined wines being made, but also with a sense of place and they, they feel, they feel good. They're not being made in a way that's gimmicky or just for scores or, you know, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of soul in the wines that are, that are going on right now. But I also feel like they're mature. They feel, they feel grown up. They feel, uh, informed and, and I think that's good. I think I think the winemakers across the board are all working hard, and I think that's I think that's neat. Mm -hmm. I think they're all. It feels like everybody's working working hard at getting getting better, and um, yeah, and the community I think is still strong as ever. Um, it's kind of cool seeing shifts and age group and you know and there's always still a little like uh trends and stuff but i think um on the whole everybody's feels like sort of more or less on the same page mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and there's always little like you know sort of subgroups and factions and whatever but when it comes right down to it everybody still really kind of loves each other and i don't think there's like this thing where we judge one another for our methods. You know, I think that's cool. It's like, okay, that works for you. It doesn't work for me, and it's mm -hmm. it's fine. What do you see as you look ahead for the industry? Say, you mentioned two to three hundred years earlier, but even just say ten years in the future, what what do you see for Oregon wine? Um, I think there's going to be probably even more old world influence on 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 process. Um, I think there's. Uh, there's a lot of like cross-referencing with Burgundy and, and I think some of that's migrating into Oregon and I think um, winemakers are kind of feeling like okay that's the next place and we need to learn more about that and bring import some of that to our own processes and I think that's cool um, I think funnily enough I think Packaging is gonna like take some, is gonna have some mm -hmm. some sort of advances. Like I think of like just just like some of the graphic aspects of our branding is 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 I think kind of on the move a little mm -hmm. bit. I think we're gonna be able to take some more risks there, um, which will make. I think it'll kind of make the it'll it'll probably make the, the identity a little bolder, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe slightly more sophisticated. Um, 
that's a nuance that's a small that's like kind of really nuanced but i think it's happening i think there's 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 um i mean if you look at the old world just like graphically their packaging is is very very kind of smart and, and it seems like they've got professionals working on this stuff whereas we've always kind of done it a little bit on the either on the cheap or on the fly or a little bit of both you know and and I think uh, once that kind of genie's out of the bottle mm -hmm. I think the industry has to 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 respond and evolve and, and I think that's a cool thing you know we're working on our own sort of uh, updates too and and I think that's I think that's good because I think it will push the industry as a whole uh, into being even more relevant you know so I think this this awareness of uh, you know we're competing on a world stage and so we have to keep up um, you know I can think of like upstate New York where I fell for wine um, I hate to say it, but their labels just suck, and and it's sad because I think in order to get taken seriously, even if the wine is mm -hmm. there, you got to have some some awareness of like, okay, what's that? What's that about? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're being put to the test a little bit there, and um, so I think there's that, and I think within the wines. Um, I like where everything's going. You know, I do think the wines feel like they're they're you know they're sharper, and, and I think there's a better. It's funny. It's ironic because the natural wine industry um, like stripped wine down to its bare essentials. Like we do nothing. And it kind of like was was this thing that was kind of rubbing up against the, the 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 classic wine producers as like that's totally bull crap because they're not doing anything they don't know how to make wine and I think but here's the thing is um, the positive takeaway from that is that. Natural wine became engaging. People got engaged with it. They go, I'm gonna drink that. It's, I don't care what's going on. It's interesting, it's different, it's engaging. And I think as a, I, I kind of define it as classic wine producer and, and, and like Oregon in general, this refined product that was kind of making advances and supposedly getting better wasn't always getting better. I think you could say that it was probably cleaner, it was more stable, it was proper, like you wouldn't be able to like pick it apart, but was it better? And I think, I think we kind of plateaued a little bit there and I think the natural wine industry Everybody's got an opinion about it, but I think the, the, the take home for me was it actually kind of got everybody thinking about is your wine engaging? Is it, is it better? Is it 
is it good? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it really good? And uh, not just sort of checking the box is good. And I think um, we don't all have to go to that. We don't have to go back to the, to the, you know, the basics. I admire natural wine for the purity and the, the you know, the whole thing is, is so nature driven. I get it. Um, but I think we can apply some of the same aspects to, 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 to classic wine making. Like, we have to make these wines engaging and keep them engaging. Like, we can't just sort of rest on laurels and think, okay, it's solid. It got a 92 or a 93. We're good. You know, I think, I think we have to constantly address um, are these wines really good like really good or are we just trying to sell them as as good and, and I think um, that's a next level place you know and I think people who are really passionate about wine know the difference you know I think they know when you're just sort of phoning it in and, and I think the Oregon wine industry was the beneficiary of a lot of you know, a good enough amount of hype that I think it was easy to kind of be like, we got this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I, and I think uh, what I sense right now is that, that a lot of producers are, are like, you know what, no, we can do, we can do better. And I think uh, it's our duty to keep, you know, keep, even without like presenting flaws and weird, weirdness, we still have to present something that's engaging and, and so I think that's and that's harder than it sounds truthfully yeah absolutely. you know and I think uh, we have to be our own critics and make sure we're we're doing that and um, so I think winemaking in Oregon is pretty ambitious truthfully you know, I think people are, are really quick to be like, at least right now, I think people are in this mode of like, we want to be at the top of the mountain, you know. And um, not even so much like, in the marketing sense, but I think the, the winemaking sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of cool. Mm -hmm. It's like there's just like this really serious um, attempt for to to like really make great wine, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think that's neat. You know, I see it really profoundly in the Chardonnay department, but I also think Pinot too. Mm -hmm. you know, I think people are really getting getting really really down down deep into this like what is great wine, mm -hmm. and um, so. That's neat to be a part of, That's truthfully. Neat. It keeps you going. It does. On, yeah. on that note, what about you as you look ahead for your own future, for yourself, for Crowley? What, what, do, you, what do you see coming down the road for yourself? Um, I think I want to own Vineyard. I think that's my, my sort of big... I'm kind of sort of content with barrels being 
here or maybe somewhere else. But I, I kind of feel like, uh, just for me personally, I would feel good if we, if we owned um, at least part of our inventory in a vineyard. Uh, I mean, things change, and we're along far enough that you know I've got things that are important to the to the to the brand. Um, we can do long-term contracts too. I think that's that's just something we all have to think about. Is like, okay, now how do we build longevity and some, you know, some security mm-hmm. with our sources and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, equity building, you know, I mean, virtual winery is is. I mean, I wouldn't really. I don't think this is insignificant, but. Um, as a business goes, I, I have ideas as to how I'd like to proceed. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe a little bit of growth, you know, 4,000 cases, somewhere in there would be a nice spot. Um, some tweaks to the branding in terms of, uh, I think I want to diversify a little bit in the Chardonnay department. Um, Yeah, and I mean, const- I guess constantly, you know, I mean, I feel pretty content right now, but I also know that, um, you know, every vintage is different and new, and so, you know, there's there's never really a, a spot where you relax. I think I'm, you know, getting a little older, so I guess I'm feeling like, I, you know, I want to um, make sure that 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 there's you know, maybe some things uh, like vacations and stuff that are, you know, <laughs> built in, you know, that kind of stuff. Nothing, nothing crazy. I mean, I like my work, but I think, um, you know, sustaining it and keeping it, keeping it healthy and is cool. I've been delegating more, which is nice. So I kind of able to think more sort of big picture. Mm-hmm. So I think that's healthy and um, yeah, nothing, nothing too crazy. Mm-hmm. I think security long-term for the vineyards is probably the, is, is the big one. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done a lot of work in the Four Winds Vineyard. Um, it's more or less a monopole, but there's some amazing Chardonnay from, from there that's really, I wouldn't be able to duplicate that. So it's important to secure um, sourcing. Mm-hmm. So as, as you as you look back on your time in Oregon One, what are you proudest of? Probably just uh, the amount of time I put in with other producers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think in the landscape and, and in terms of like getting to that ultimate place of making great wine, I think that's, that's imperative. Mm-hmm. Um, that context, you know, the learning of the terroir, the learning of the sort of the organ story mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. putting in time with other producers and, you know, not having, uh, 
a brand at that time, which, you know, made it so that I was really just, you know, it was a job, of course, but I was there for them. And, and I, you know, and I took all that in. And I think, uh, as I look back, I think, man, 25 images, like, it feels like a lot right now. I mean, it does. And, and I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm not, I don't feel old. I feel like I'm, you know, still kind of getting started, but then I'm like 25 images. That's pretty cool. So, I'm, you know, I'm kind of sort of quietly proud of that because I think it does actually play out. And, um, um, yeah, definitely, definitely feel like, you know, making the most of uh, my professional life so far. Um, and I was lucky to, you know, to be in the position I was, I was in. And I feel like all the mentoring and, you know, really crossing paths with the right people. Um, all the way through, I feel like I've, I've been in a good, like, good company and, you know, having, like, great people to look up to and learn from. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I've, you know, it's been, it's been great. But it is a lot, a lot of years now. It's, it's sort of funny. I mean, it's just, it's, sometimes I'm, I'm, it went fast, but then I'm like, geez, that's a lot, you know. <laughs> So, I won't say that anymore. <laughs> so, well, thank you. That's all the questions that I have for okay. you. Is there anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? Anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Not really. I think you know. I, I mean, I kind of feel like the way it went was was kind of perfect. <laughs> that's 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 all I want to hear. Then I mean. It's funny when I talk about that, I've never talked about that little lull. Mm -hmm. So I think that's pretty, pretty interesting because I do think most organ like stories probably have a, some moment of like, call it a setback or adversity or whatever. And I think that's, that's, if I'm really being honest, that is part of the, part of my story too, you know, mm -hmm. and not like it was, you know, totally profound, but I think it's enough to where you're, I think it, what it, what it reminds me of is that, um, probably everybody gets in a moment of questioning and, mm -hmm. and wondering, wondering where they fit in. Mm -hmm. It's kind of helps probably make you a little better long-term, you know, because mm -hmm. so. in the beginning, you know, things, it felt like things were falling into place. Like it was kind of uh, after I worked with Cameron, his reputation is so good that it opened a lot of doors for me. And so, um, but at some point, you're kind of on your own, and yeah, you got to figure it out. So, well, we appreciate you sharing that, especially and, and everything else, all, all the stories and, and, and memories. So, uh, thank you so much, and, and we'll let you we'll let you out of here. Thanks for. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. 
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.